You're listening to Work Tape, episode 81. Welcome to this edition of the Work Tape podcast. It is your boy, Money Mitchell, Isaac Rubin Grover. And uh, this time we're going to be talking a little bit about digital bands, specifically bands or artists that existed mostly in the digital realm while having maybe some actual humans behind them. They were more well-known in the digital space. Um, this is kind of a carryover of the last couple episodes in which we talked about AI's role in music, uh, technology's role in music, the interesting dichotomy between the two um, oftentimes how technology is going to shape how music is made. And it got us thinking about some of these bands, specifically Gorillaz and Daft Punk, artists who were very influential or bands, collectives, whatever you want to call them, um, that were extremely influential in their, their respective spaces. Um, Gorillaz kind of being the formation of the remaining members of Blur. Um, I believe their lead singer is the leading member of Blur. Uh, his name is escaping me right now. Oh, uh, uh, Damon Alburn? Damon, yeah. Yeah. So Damon was a lot of the big force behind that one. But then um, you had kind of a collective of rappers and artists. Um, Danger Mouse, I think, worked a lot with Gorillaz back in the day as well. Um, for those who don't know, Danger Mouse being one of the prolific hip-hop producers of the time. Uh, Narls Barkley, of course, with um, CeeLo Green. And Danger Mouse actually produced one of my favorite Black Keys records, too, which was uh, that Brothers album um, that had Howlin' For You and Tighten Up and just a lot of great, great songs off of that record. So, uh, But back to Gorillaz, um, it was kind of a bit revolutionary at the time uh, just because you didn't really have a lot of like truly digital bands that were like kind of existing or that were created mostly just to be living in the digital space. And I think Gorillaz kind of took advantage of like the prominence of the internet at that time and really were able to capitalize off of it. And still to this day, um, they're, I think they, didn't they just go on tour not too long ago and um, were selling out still? Yeah. And doing collaborations with Elton John and a lot of other people. Yeah. So, I mean, it was just kind of up until that point, you didn't really see like a lot of that happen. I mean, of course you had, you know, if you go back to like the eighties or something, you have like Max Headroom or something where, but he wasn't really an artist. He was more of kind of just like a figure, I guess, like a figure online. Would you say gorillas were like a, a pioneer of virality? Definitely. I definitely think so. And it's also because they had really good music to back it up too. Accurate. I think it's like if you are going to have, you know, the kind of solely digital presence that um, a band like Gorillaz had, you had to have really good music to back it up. And of course, Gorillaz does have some excellent music on Melancholy Hill, Clint Eastwood, you know, Feel Good, of course. You know, a lot of those are what I would consider to be modern day classics. And it's kind of interesting because I feel like Damon actually had more success with Gorillaz than he had with Blur. Um, maybe that's just because Blur was kind of in Oasis's shadow for such a long time. And there was always that kind of, it was like Coke and Pepsi. It's like, 
you either liked Blur or you liked Oasis. And uh, there wasn't really a lot of people who liked both, to be honest. That's true. Yeah, there were those teams. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm team Blur, by the way. <laughs> but you actually like Blur more than, than Oasis. You know, I think Oasis, uh, I won't lie, I think Oasis technically are the better songwriters, but I also prefer bands that aren't necessarily into songwriting, but more experimentation. Yeah, I would say that Blur was probably a little bit more experimental. experimental. And that's why I like Blur more than um, Oasis, even if you could argue that Oasis had better songs. And I like Radiohead because they got both. Yeah, Radiohead is kind of like the best of both worlds in that respect. Like it does have like the Brit pop accessibility of great, you know, songwriting. Like, um, for example, I think one of the Radiohead songs in terms of kind of similar to Oasis would be like No Surprises off of like Paranoid Android. Kind of has that like very like organic kind of melancholic Brit pop sound. But then Radiohead, of course, with like Kid A and like um, King of Limbs and stuff like that. And even in Rainbows to a certain extent. That's why In Rainbows is one of the greatest albums of all time. In Rainbows is just amazing. We could really do almost an entire episode just on In Rainbows, to be honest with you. It's just a... It's just a great record. I mean, it's a little bit of a safe pick if you're going to say that that's like your favorite Radiohead album. I think it's probably mine along with maybe Paranoid just because like I think that those are just cohesively great albums. I do like the Benz though. The Benz is also great. Oh, so you mean OK Computer and uh, In Rainbows? Yeah, Paranoid Android is off of OK Computer. That's right. Correction, OK Computer and In Rainbows are my two favorite Radiohead albums. Probably with the Benz being third behind that just because i think the bends really did kind of capitalize on that guitar sound oh totally but uh yeah so the gorillas was kind of a successful like digital band and a successful digital artist unlike crazy frog uh which <laughs> the very antithesis of ai digital driven artists um yeah crazy frog while being immensely popular back in the day, especially with the kind of take on the Axel Foley riff. Um, I mean, I think that was like everybody's ringtone for a while. Look, when it comes to AI, Crazy Frog hopped so we could run. I mean, yeah, you, we talked last episode about the dumpster fire that was FN Mecca, but I think what preceded it was kind of a bigger dumpster fire in, in Crazy Frog. But uh, it's really kind of hit and miss in regards to kind of the AI-driven music acts. And then you have Daft Punk. Daft Punk is really interesting because Daft Punk actually is, you know, two Frenchmen. But, I mean, really in terms of how people knew of Daft Punk, especially because they kept their identities hidden behind those helmets for all those years, people really knew them more as a digital entity than I think even as, like, traditional DJs. You know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't like a David Guetta or like a Diplo or something or or Calvin Harris maybe would even be like the antithesis where like people know like Calvin Harris because he's the producer and the DJ and, you know, he's all out there. But, you know, Daft Punk kind of kept that anonymity in a way. And I think that's kind of what led them to be more of a digital band, not only just being, you know, electronic music, but just kind of being more exclusively known just online. And then the biggest gut punch was actually the fact that Daft Punk didn't do one more tour for random access memories. 
which I think Random Access Memories is one of the best albums of the last 10 years without really any question, just because you had a perfect blend of Daft Punk's trademark sound, which was the vocoders, the upbeat, you know, danceable stuff, the samples, but then you had a lot of live playing on it too, you know, very reminiscent of 70s and 80s records. And in a big way, I actually think that Ram kind of influenced that old school made new kind of sound, especially when you had tracks like Get Lucky. So Daft Punk perfected and more, right? More matured and then plus more. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's just like you got to listen to the whole record, not just like the singles, not just like Get Lucky or Lose Yourself to Dance, which are great singles, you know, led by, you know, Pharrell and Niall. Niall Rogers is all over. You know, but I think if you listen to the whole album, it's beautifully produced. It has that kind of warmth of a lot of 70s and 80s records. And I think it kind of brought back like that old school approach into like mainstream music that, you know, we're still kind of getting the ripples of now. And I think that's really cool. But I mean, like the the whole digital thing, I think, especially when you look at examples like Crazy Frog and FN Mecca, you know, you bring up the question about whether or not like AI is going to replace us. And I don't think they're going to just because like you look at those examples and they kind of crashed and burned as opposed to the digital bands that still had people behind them who actually, you know, succeeded, you know, far beyond what a lot of people were, were really going to think. At least that's kind of my take on things is that even if a band or an artist is going to exist exclusively kind of in a digital space, I do think they still need to have, you know, some human soul behind it. And I think those are the ones that are able to really kind of rise above and then, Meanwhile, I feel like in the case of like Crazy Frog or FN Mecca, it's kind of like failed experiments in a way. I'm not sure what your take is on it, but that's kind of where I stand more or less. Um, it was a ridiculous and helpless pun, like pretty much every pun known to man, but he literally hopped so we could run. So yeah, it was failed, right? But I guess it was failed only in the sense that it wasn't, you know, I'm not sure how that aged. I don't think it aged well, but you know, we wouldn't get certain projects if it weren't for, you know, Crazy Frog. Um, yeah, I, that, that's the best I can say because, I mean, Gorillaz is a super cool outfit, you know. And uh, actually, Crazy Frog didn't precede Gorillaz by that much either, huh? I mean, that's kind of after Gorillaz. I'm trying to think of something that led up to now that we can say we're proud of. Yeah, I, I kind of think they were about the same time, kind of. Say it was like the early 2000s is when both of them were starting to get some traction. And I mean, with Crazy Frog, people kind of did just write it off as like a bit of a joke and kind of a bit of like a novelty act. Which is why they legitimized it. They only legitimized it as a bit of a novelty, but they never really truly took it seriously. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, because as, even as a kid, I thought it was, you know, it wasn't my thing. With music that sounds like that, like, yeah, I mean, come on now. Um, like, you know, who are we fool? <laughs> Some people like that's their literal jam, but I'm like, n- not for me. Yeah. What's really interesting about the whole like AI music discussion is actually kind of how prominent like technology or AI is actually like in the East, like with Eastern cultures and their music. 
Um, you know, K-pop has had like a huge explosion in like the last couple of years from, of course, you know, groups like BTS. But there's a lot of examples of like Korean and Japanese music that's actually like very AI driven. I think Hatsun Mika is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Is that how you say it? I'm, I'm, you, you said it about as well as I could. So uh, we're, we're going to roll with it. But I mean, that shouldn't be surprising that there's going to be a lot of kind of AI and tech influence, especially with how far ahead the East can be in regards to technology. And there's a lot of people who say, oh, you know, the K-pop, even a lot of K-pop groups are not that far off of kind of like a fabrication or a creation of what would be like an ideal band in a way or like an ideal group, you know, because you hear a lot of the music and there is like a certain pattern to it, you know, like nothing against the success that BTS has had, especially these last couple of years. But I feel like there isn't really as much variety in BTS's sound. In a way, if I've heard one BTS song, I've heard most of them, you know, um, in terms of just kind of structure and like a particular formula. But I don't know, maybe there's some room to be had, especially with kind of the explosion of of that, you know, music in the Western world. But at least that's kind of where I'm feeling about it. So, yeah, I mean, another one that comes to mind, too, which is a bit, well, it's not super off topic, which is more in a Daft Punk era, which yeah. basically we're probably leaning toward it was a uh, dead mouse. Yeah. 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 I mean, there there's, we can make a, a lot of comparisons with so many of those EDM artists that kind of decide to keep themselves behind like a mask or kind of keep themselves behind, you know, some sort of costume or something. There was a lot of that going on, especially like in that era of music, like the late two thousands going into the early 2010s, you had, of course, Dead Mouse, you had Marshmallow as of recent. Yep. Sia, too, even in a non EDM context, you had Sia do that um, for a little while, as well as Kanye. Kanye even got into the whole like mask thing, too, for a long time. I think it was on his uh, Yeezus tour. It was on his Yeezus tour that he uh, came out for most of the performance behind a mask, actually. Once again, it seems like kind of no matter what we talk about, especially in modern music, it kind of circulates back to Kanye, too, in a big way. Which, I mean, that kind of just goes to show Kanye's, like, relevance and the fact that he's maintained relevance for now 20-plus years and many other aspects of music kind of lead back to him is pretty remarkable. Um, you know, despite the fact that, as of recent, Kanye has been extremely problematic you really can't deny the influence that he has and I think will continue to have, especially within like the digital you know, space of music too, because when he made graduation, that was kind of capitalizing a lot off of digital sounds and synths and all that. So it does all go back to Kanye in some way, I guess. <laughs> what a tagline. Yeah, it, it, really, it, it really does though. It really, really does. Because so many people, I think, were kind of like at one point and even now kind of look to Kanye in terms of what to do next um, in regards to music and production specifically as well. But I mean, going back to kind of the topic at hand, yeah, it seems like a lot of EDM artists specifically, at least for that period of time, like late 2000s, early 2010s, really had this big thing with like anonymity 
And um, of course, like I said, even in the non-EDM space, you had examples such as Sia, you know, who was also doing it too um, for a long, long time. And there's a big conversation there too about like artists and anonymity and music kind of keeping their sense of personality and personal space. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot to kind of uncover there as well. So Oh, totally. Now, uh, really quickly, I thought these deserve some mentions, but that's the interesting thing about the virtual realm when it comes to bands is pre-computer days, or at least pre-using computers to generate bands or, or whatever you want to say, or the internet. You had bands like The Archies, Alvin and the Chipmunks, and then like Josie and the Pussycats. Most of them were more so based off of shows. And I think Gorillaz kind of takes off of that idea more, even though Gorillaz wasn't necessarily based off of a show, but it's from that animated band pedigree. Oh, yeah, very much so. Like, that's kind of the conversation about, you know, bands that only existed like in, you know, a specific context, I guess. And going to the Alvin and the Chipmunks example, I mean, with that kind of thing, it was more of like experimentation, even too, with recording technology. You know, so once again, the dynamic of technology and music is is very apparent, even with, you know, something like that, where, you know, they sped up the voice, like the tape. Yeah. And layered it and made it sound like, you know, there were reached chipmunks singing and then even the interchange. And um, it was, you know, kind of a pretty like innovative record in itself. Um, and of course, it spawned, you know, a a whole franchise, which say what you will about Alvin <laughs> franchise. All I'm going to say is that I love David Cross. <laughs> yeah, David Cross is hilarious. I mean, he is like the embodiment of what could be wrong with the music industry. Like, if you labeled all of the like stereotypes and tropes of like a shady record <laughs> manager into oh. one character, like. He perfectly exemplifies all of that. Yes, he did. <laughs> That's just brilliant. I mean, that is probably one of the better things of that movie. Like, no question. But seriously, it was one of the things that, that made it a bit more tolerable. Um, <laughs> he made it, man. <laughs> oh, really? And, and, and when they ditched his character, his presence was missed. And I'm like, oh, where, where, is, where, where is the David Cross character? Now, now I can't stand these movies even more but <laughs> but, it's, but it's like i said the, the whole conversation of technology and and music is one that's going to be kind of like ever evolving because even the whole idea of synth-based music is very new i mean of course it's been around for i think actually at this point like almost hundreds of years at this point because i want to say that you know they were experimenting with synths in the early Oh, like the early 1900s, you know, or like the early, you know, yeah, 1900s. Because you had, of course, like music coming out of Germany and France um, that kind of perpetuated that sound. Like the whole invention of the synth and utilizing like the synthesizer, it's relatively new still. And many of the, the stuff that we've seen is relatively new, hence why they kind of dub it as like, the sounds of the future because it is and you have great synth legends like you know vangelis giorgio moroder of course stevie wonder uh you know utilized synths heavily in his career 
And actually, I mean, kind of vocoder too. Actually, Stevie Wonder kind of used a lot of vocoder as well, kind of early on. There's a great performance of uh, Close to You that he did for a, a special on TV where he was using like the vocoder. And that's one of the first like uses, like the first big uses of vocoded vocals. And of course, you have like modern synth legends like, you know, Mike Dean, who's producing a lot of the, the hip hop records you hear, Kevin Parker of Tame Impala. You know, so, and, and actually, I guess Tom York, even of Radiohead. Oh, totally. You know, is, is should definitely be included in, in the conversation. And um, once again, it seems like many of our topics also relate back to Radiohead in some fashion as well. Because Radiohead is kind of, well, some people have said that like Kendrick Lamar is the Radiohead of hip hop, which I would say is a fair comparison. It's fair. Yeah. Uh, especially when you look like album to album and kind of how uh, there's a lot of experimentation. But then, you know, Radiohead is kind of in levels of their own. And, and that's why, because I think as opposed to many groups, they adopted more electronic elements and more synth. And some of their stuff even sounds a bit like drum and bass. What's the track off of Kid A? Um, Idiotech, I believe, kind of sounds like a and b song has that kind of like upbeat, somewhat chaotic sounding drums to it. But there's always this kind of dynamicism, though, between technology and artists. And like I said, I think in terms of the conversation of whether or not AI and and whatnot is going to replace human artists, uh, not for a long time. I don't think it's really going to be much of a threat for a significant amount of time still. Just because when you, of course, look at the case studies of FN Mecca, Crazy Frog, a lot of the truly like digital artists, even with their music, they have not been able to reach the audience or, you know, tap into really kind of the emotional core that, you know, we humans do, of course. And I think a lot of music listeners feel like the lack of soul especially from like a, a completely AI driven artist. There's still value in the human feel, right? Yes. Yeah. And I mean, of course, we talked about in, in length for a couple episodes about, you know, programs such as, you know, chat GPT and other forms of kind of AI that were helping more on the lyric side. And of course, you know, kind of the compositional side of music and whether or not you know, AI is a real threat to music creation. Of course, like the MIDI chord pack stuff, you know, um, I'm sure you've heard of like the unison audio stuff. I'm sure you've gotten like bombarded with like advertising. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Yeah, I think it all like kind of relates back to the idea of like technology replacing musicians, you know, and that idea or, or you know, artists being taken over by digital kind of software creations. And that was the big, you know, concern that many old head producers and artists thought when a lot of synths and digital recording was kind of introduced. Like there was this kind of big scare about like, oh, you know, we're we're all going to be like out of jobs basically because of, you know, the fact that this VST or whatever is going to spit out, you know, realistic guitar licks or you know realistic bass sounds 
But I think what's actually happening more and more is that because of how realistic those can be, I don't even think it's necessarily replacing a lot of artists, but I think it's just making it easier for one-stop shop style production where it really can be one person doing the entire record. You know, it's the same appeal that an artist like Prince had back in the 70s where they were playing, you know, every instrument themselves. You have a lot more of like people with that kind of ability now and that kind of access now um, because of the tech and how far VSTs have come in that respect. So I think it's actually right now kind of fostering more creativity and, and allowing individuals to really do a lot of their own stuff and not have to rely on kind of, you know, traditional framework and whatnot of other people kind of leading into the overall wave of independent artists on the rise and kind of breaking away from the traditional system. But uh, that being said, I do think there is a lot of emphasis in bouncing ideas off of another person and, and a lot of um, that kind of human interaction there. So I, I don't think that AI is is going to replace music artists, not for a good long while until you have like better development of AI. So that's kind of where I stand on that. It's one of those things where the continued like dichotomy and dynamic of tech and music is an ever-growing study. And we can definitely touch upon um, some of the more technical sides of production, especially with kind of the rise of chord packs and sample packs later down the line in terms of how that's really shaping a lot of music production that we're hearing now. One of the biggest proprietors of that is, have you heard of Frank Dukes? No, I have not. Okay, so Frank Dukes is um, this dude from Toronto. Um, He's kind of a younger guy. Basically, he got a lot of early studio experience with like the Menahan Street Band, if you've um, heard of them and and whatnot. More independent but soulful kind of bands. Um, or the Menaha Street Band is an excellent collective of like trumpet. It's like a soul instrumental group. But basically, Frank Dukes was this guy who, by working with these different artists early in his career, decided that he was going to make it easier for producers to sample without the obstacles of clearance, basically. Of course, the big issue that you know a lot of sample-based music still has, even to this day, is clearance issues. The Joey Badass record got delayed because of clearing samples. Even Beyonce's last record, Renaissance, was built mostly around sampled bits from dance records. And even she had some issues as well with um, getting certain samples like authorized and clear. Now, granted, Beyonce has a lot of money to pay off, you know, whoever she needs to pay off for those samples. But still, the challenge there is still getting the clearance. So Frank Dukes really created this whole kind of market of himself as well as other producers making sample packs and compositions specifically for sampling. Unlike, you know, the traditional way of back in the day where you would, you know, just digitally crate dig and pull, you know, samples off of records. 
no, these artists and producers now are creating compositions for the sole purpose of being sampled and having, you know, easier clearance and not having to have so much of their royalties stripped because they sampled, you know, 10cc or whatever obscure, you know, band, you know, because even with the obscure samples, like, you know, they still got to pay, you know. But yeah, so I think that that's kind of an interesting continuation of technology and music and specifically also, um, you know, in regards to clearance. And I think that that would be something that we could really get into pretty heavily uh, within the next episode is just the way that music production has changed over the last, I'd say, five years in regards to many of these songs that you're hearing now coming from these sample packs and, um, you know, these sample packs leading to big placements. But yeah, so uh, that's going to conclude this edition of the Work Tape podcast. It's been your boy, Money Mitchell. we got Isaac Ruben Grover. And uh, stay hydrated, y'all. Peace. Peace.